sweet summer children. Welcome to a very special, and by special I mean critically unplanned, episode of the hit podcast, Peep This Noise. I am so sorry. Oh, yeah, okay, there comes the hot apology. You are Logan Johnson, and he is so sorry. Yeah. (laughs) And who are you, a a mysterious voice? Uh, I am Greg Marchant. (laughs) Perfect. So yes, it's me, Logan Johnson, our co-host, So Sorry, otherwise known as Nathaniel Johnson. We'll be referring to him uh, as the podcast host formerly known as Nathaniel Johnson. Uh, we can Greg just call Martin. me so sorry for the rest. Uh, if you guys want to refer to me, just say, so, so, what do you think? <laughs> so, so. Okay. I like that nickname, but it is a little so, so. Um, wow. Starting off with a little so, so huh? is what my <laughs> call is what my high school girlfriend called me. Golly. Little so-so is what your mom called you when you went to the prom with her in Back to the Future 1. Um, let's see. Now that I've totally drifted us off the track, uh, it's actually maybe apropos because this episode has drifted a little off the track. As So Sorry has alluded to, uh, we were supposed to watch Isle of Flowers, which I guess is like a pretty rad like Portuguese short film. I wouldn't know because I didn't get to see it because it was removed from YouTube, um, as anybody who went to look for it would know. Yeah, I mean, the Portuguese version is still there, but not the English <laughs> one. And uh, none of us speak Portuguese. The closest is uh, I speak Spanish to at least enough of a degree that I can fake my way in a conversation. So you're just going to out here flex your foreign language skills, huh? <laughs> flex, flex. But as, we, uh, but as everybody should be aware, Portuguese and Spanish are most definitely not the same language. No, they not are not. Close. Though... It's always really weird. I have friends who speak Portuguese as, like, their only language that they speak. And so in my, I'll say broken Spanish, even though it's a little better than broken, I will communicate to them, and they will speak fluent Portuguese to me, and we'll just chat for a while. And I'm pretty sure I know what they're saying most of the time, but I'm never quite positive. Like, I'm always, like, a little bit, like... Huh, did I get that? And there's usually a good five minutes every 15 minutes or so of me being like, no, wait, I have no clue what you said. Like, let's try this again. Uh, very one, interesting one, experience. One day that's going to collapse in on you with just sitcom levels of disastrous comedy. Uh, but since that day <laughs> hasn't happened yet, uh, I will be anxiously awaiting it. So given the fact that we didn't have a piece to review for this episode, we batted back and forth on, on what we were actually going to do. And what we decided to do was to go over a few theoretical frameworks that we find useful when we look at media. Um, Brace yourselves, this one's going to probably get a little heavy on the scholarship. (laughs) So some of these are a little more academic frameworks that we've used to analyze things before. If you're a fan of like casually listening to like the albums we recommend or casually watching the movies we recommend and less a fan of the deep cultural reads... Uh, just know that going in that that's pretty much all this is going to be and it's going to be absent the media we normally apply it to (laughs) Um, but yeah hopefully it should be valuable yeah i think for all of us these uh the ideas that we're going to talk about these are things that we've found to be really to be really useful ways to to look at the world in certain situations so if you if you like um if on the other hand you as uh our listeners like uh trying on uh, trying on new perspectives at how to look at the things that they see around them this this could be really good and we're gonna like suggest that. some readings and stuff too 
your positive flip of my negative statement was much better and i wish i would have led with that but um, oh, thank you yeah i definitely agree with you on that um this is something that for me has drastically changed the way that i analyze the things that i look at yeah and i um, think that if we can come up with any of the pieces of media we've already reviewed on the show using this kind of framework that we should say oh we reviewed this movie or this book or whatever with this kind of framework in mind yeah i guess to start us off uh here in the show notes i'm going first and i'm doing post-colonialism uh which people who uh have listened to the show for a minute will remember we did frozen 2 with a kind of a post-colonial viewpoint um a very mild one i got us a little heavy in the weeds on some specific terms and we got a little bogged down by that i think but um, i i decided to be i decided to be a little bit a little bit more obstinate than it really called for as well on my end (laughs) now logan i don't understand the english language as well as i'd like to pretend i do so what does post-colonialism actually mean Sorry. Okay, post-colonialism. I can't. I can't even with the with the way that Nathaniel is just like quietly chuckling across from me. <laughs> yeah, he just introduced that like he was in a uh, educational video from the seventh grade, and I'm and about to bust how into, <laughs> I'm about to bust into educational rap over here. <laughs> I feel so, Greg, I feel if, a strong PowerPoint energy. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say if you'll drop the beat, then I'll get started on this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> coronavirus it, it just sounds like somebody's dying honestly. yep scram um, yeah so the electric city <laughs> oh man that unfortunately was not fair use we'll all be going to prison now um so post-colonialism i guess to to leave the segue train and get onto the real one is is a form of of literary theory that was derived essentially the moment that thinkers were allowed on the scene who were not white um this isn't the same thing as critical race theory which is when when african americans and and africans from africa started to get into the literary theory scene this is more when a country had been colonized for example india is a big player in this scene a country had been colonized for a very long time once that colonization started to fade and thinkers began to emerge from that place they began to write about the effects of colonialism on their homeland um, and so a big uh, thing here, a big element is an analysis of colonialism and of, of imperialism and of the problems that it causes on a global and local scale. Um, some big thinkers in this field are Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, and Homi Baba are, are kind of three big players in this space. Um, and uh, I think maybe some of the best ways to conceptualize this is, is just to borrow a quote from Said. So people who are really interested in post-colonialism should take a look at his book culture and imperialism that's a text that i will will throw out here uh it's about 400 pages or so and it's just kind of him in the 90s going through and and analyzing the ways that that literary texts have a tendency to propagate the ideas of imperialism Um, one of the things that he says here in, in this book is borrowing from the second chapter about jane austen he says I am saying that European culture often, if not always, characterized itself in such a way as simultaneously to validate its own preferences while also advocating those preferences in conjunction with distant imperial rule. So Said's main thesis and one of the big ideas in imperialism or in uh, post-colonial theory is that an imperial power or even a colonial presence 
has a tendency to be ideologically reiterated through its artwork. So one of the things that we see with post-colonialism and one of the things that makes it a good way to analyze is we start to understand that, okay, there are ways that a writer like, for example, Jane Austen can start to unconsciously validate negative ideas that support colonialism in their work, right? Think about any time you've been reading an older novel and you've read something about how savage Africa is, or you've read something about how um, untamed or unwild India is. I, I was reading The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, and there's a portion in that novel or novella where it's just mentioned offhandedly that the two children who are the main figures in that story, their parents died in India, right? So think about the ways that you've seen older, particularly English works, um, reflect foreign places as dangerous or uncivilized or, or damaged. And then you're starting to get an idea of what post-colonial theorists look for, right? Ways in which the homeland is valorized and all other lands are, are kind of put down. Now, Logan, I, I'm having a thought about this Disney movie that I really enjoyed as a kid and still respect a lot of the animation and artistry that went into it now. Um, but it, Peter Pan. Uh, no, that's a good one. That's could a good have been that one. It could have been that one. No. Um, and this one was met with a lot of negative reception upon release, basically. And it's Pocahontas. Yes. Um, now for those of you who haven't seen Pocahontas, it is a, it does the Disney thing where it takes some story, whether it's true or not, and it just says, we're just going to make this a Disney princess fairy tale, um, which I don't think is usually a bad thing, but in this case, it it was done very poorly and made a lot of Native American groups and a lot of friends of Native American groups very frustrated. Um, but there's there's kind of this theme that exists with the character of John Smith, who is the good guy among the white guys who comes in the movie. And he is singing a song about how fortunate he is to be in this land uh, because it is a land that he can tame. And it's a land that's exciting and it's new and it's fresh. Would this kind of idea or motif fall underneath the same problems of post-colonialism? Because you describe post-colonialism as, or colonialism at least, as looking at foreign lands as dangerous, um or savage or barbaric but here he is saying oh i'm so excited because here i can have an adventure i can't have an adventure in england but i can have one here and kind of romanticizing that danger yeah that's a good question so i think maybe to clarify a little bit about post-colonial theory that's one attitude of imperialism or colonial thought right this idea that the outside of the homeland, um, what you would call the periphery in post-colonial theory, that area is particularly dangerous. And uh, I guess maybe I should be clear. Yes, this is an example of that. Um, it's not an example of John Smith doing it, though. This is an example of the film Pocahontas. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the idea, right? It's using John Smith to do it. Um, but I guess this is like where you would insert right here and say like, okay, Let's pause. Even a what you could generously call, and I would really just scare quote and italicize the word generously there, what you could generously call a positive view of the Americas as an untamed and savage place, if John Smith coming in there with the intent to 
uh, tame or to have an adventure or to exploit it for something that frankly it isn't. I mean, people were living there happily and health healthily, healthfully. They were living. They were healthy and they were happy and they were living there for many years before the arrival of colonial powers. Right. This idea that it was a particularly dangerous place, especially compared to some of the other um, forces that are in the world. I mean, the world's a dangerous place, but yes, I would agree that this is like maybe kind of a a post-colonial place to dig in and look and and figure out what exactly is being propagated here. Um, But yeah, it's it's a little bit more than just the black and white, like, yes, this is an instance of it we kind of would dig a little bit deeper, look a little bit more to the context and, and look a little bit at what ideas are being propagated by this scene. Right. Um, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I think of when I think of uh, post-colonialism is the history of anthropology. Cause mm-hmm. that uh, for our listeners, uh, anthropology is, uh, is my major. It's what I got my, it's what I got my degree in. And as a discipline, it grew up alongside uh, alongside colonial expansion. Uh, you know, for for obvious reasons, if you're coming into contact with other, uh, if you're coming into contract contact with other people who don't seem to be like you, the one of the one of the easy res- uh, one of the common responses is well uh what are they like like we need to learn something about them for whatever reason like whatever the motivation is for wanting to learn something about them it just this is just something that people think about when they come in contact with someone with someone who's not like them and with colonialism in particular um there was a heavy um, there's a heavy economic and uh, political element here because not only were people curious, but they had businesses to run. Uh, they had businesses to run in these new places, and they had to figure out how to. They had to figure out how to manipulate uh, governments. Had to figure out how to manipulate the uh, indigenous populations and all that uh, and all that stuff. Um, and. Uh, with uh and with a uh, post-colonialism uh with post-colonialism um and the theories uh or and the and the ideas that uh you put forward a minute ago as like the the main points of post-colonialism those are things that kind of those are ideas that kind of changed um the way that anthropologists uh looked at things um I'll when I kind of line outline the history of the point of the theoretical framework that I'm going to talk about later, I'll probably bring this up again, but post-colonial theory changed the way, uh, anthropologists, um, researched, uh, researched, uh, you know, other people like they changed the way, changed the way that they, uh, decided what questions to ask and what was worth knowing and what, uh, what we could really legitimately know, um, based on ethnographic research. Um, so it's, it's one of those, it's one of those theoretical frameworks that, uh, that has had a big, uh, role in the, in the, in the field of study that I picked in college. And, um, along with that, a lot of anthropological research actually 
contributed to um, contributed to the greater body of post-colonial uh, post-colonialist uh, theory as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah, they definitely kind of grow up together. And part of the reason for that is because post-colonialism is so rooted in, it changes the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see others, regardless of where you're from, um, whether you're from a colonial state or from a colonized state, you begin to see the, yourself and other powers in the world in a completely different way. Um, one of the things that this does, uh, I'll quote again from Said here, is it helps us look for the ways that this happens in our favorite media. Uh, what Said says in his book is he says, how do writers uh, in the period before the great age of explicit programmatic colonial expansion situate and see themselves in their work in the larger world? We shall find them using striking but careful strategies, many of them derived from expected sources, positive ideas of home, of a nation and its language, of proper order, good behavior, moral values. But positive ideas of this sort do more than validate our world. They also tend to devalue other worlds, and perhaps more significantly from a retrospective point of view, they do not prevent or inhibit or give resistance to horrendously unattractive imperialist practices. Um, so what Said is saying here is essentially that writing from the time, and I would extend that to modern writing, helps us view the ways uh, that imperialist groups viewed themselves and helps us situate those in context with what happened in imperialism and how we can prevent it in the future. Um, I actually think from here, Greg, it might be a good segue to move a little bit into your field and talk a little bit more about that, and then maybe we'll swing around to Nathaniel's if that works for everybody. Yeah, that works for me. Cool. Uh, yeah, so like I um, like I was mentioning, the the theoretical framework that I wanted to talk about is historical particularism, which is specifically, um, which is speci specifically basically the fundamental framework for um, for American anthropology. Um, it was uh, it was kind of developed and popularized by Franz Boas and his students. Um, Boas was a um, was a German American uh, scholar who. Um, uh, who focused in, uh, who focused on changing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ways that anthropology did things, um, while he was, uh, while he was, you know, pursuing his anthropological career in the U.S. Um, he specifically pushed back against two things, um, and a good reading for this is his paper, it's like, 12 pages long called the methods of ethnology um so franz boas the methods of a, uh, the methods of ethnology he specifically pushes back against uh against two ideas in certain ways the first is that there's this universal uh uniform uh cultural uh linear uh cultural evolution that all people go through it's that it's that idea that um, it's that idea that there are savages, barbarians, um, agricultural states, and um, and industrialized nations, and in that order you go from less evolved to more evolved. Um, and he pushes back against that idea, and also the idea that all culture is basically uh, promulgated through 
uh, migration and dissemination. Like you, uh, culture originated in a few places and then other places got their culture from those few places as people traveled around and passed things on to each other. Let's just pretend for a second to see if I'm following the theory. If we, as the United States of America, were to set up a colony on Mars, the culture of the colony on Mars would be derived from American culture. There wouldn't be some unique Martian culture. It would come from our culture, right? And he's saying that that's what happened in time, is that there were... No, he's saying that's not what happened. Oh. Um, He's saying that the... uh... Uh, the, so the he's pushing back against these two ideas by saying that, on the one hand, cultures don't go from some kind of uh, some don't follow this uniform progression like from one uh, from one type of civilization to some other type of civilization, and it's guaranteed to happen that way uh, if given enough time. And therefore, if we go look at a culture that's different than ours. That means they're somewhere in that spectrum before getting to where we're at. Like if they're, if they're, if we go and look at a go and look at a culture that um, lives in a forest and hunts and gathers and practices lim- limited horticulture, uh, then they are less evolved than we are, and we can see them. And when we look at them, we see our, uh, we see where we came from. Well, I, it, I've got an example of this that's actually really relevant. Than it sounds like. Um, when the Spanish conquistadors started going across uh, South and Central America, none of the massive empires that existed, whether that was the Aztecs or the Inca or the Maya, had the wheel. They didn't have wheels like we have in European contexts. Yeah. Wheels have been around for basically ever in Europe. Yeah. Um, But they didn't have them in these empires. Which would be an easy justification to say, they can't figure out the wheel? Ha ha ha, they're so foolish. But yeah. the Inca, on the other hand, had spreadsheets made out of rope. Yeah. Uh, that were basically like, we're talking like the kind that you would expect to find on like an accountant's computer nowadays, made out of these rope called kipu. So like, mm-hmm. it's not that they weren't advanced, it's not that they weren't able to do these things, it's just the priorities were different and the technologies and the way that the culture developed were just different yeah well one of the one of the kind of factors that some people have pointed to with specifically the um a lot of those andean uh cultures not really using wheels Mm -hmm. it's probably not that they didn't know how to make them it was probably that they're not really all that useful anybody who's tried to anybody who's tried to you know go off-roading um in in even a vehicle designed for it should realize that it's not that it's definitely a lot more unsafe than just walking across the the ground. Yeah, much <laughs> like more. it, and it's uh, and if you're trying to move any kind of stuff across that, that's not the way you're going to do it. That's not the way you want to really do it. That's why we build roads right. rather than and these, driving. It's over worth whatever. mentioning that these massive empires were connected by roadways that they would have runners go through. Yeah. You, uh, there, it was just a different kind of setup. Um, and then he, so he pushed back against that kind of idea for the obvious reason that cultures develop out of their own context. Right. He also pushed against the idea of, you know, dissemination being the only way that culture, uh, similar cultural aspects spread. 
frankly, because it's ridiculous, because that would say that, okay, we know the oldest pyramids are in Egypt. Therefore, any place that builds pyramids out of stone must have decided to do that because they came in contact with Egyptians at some point. Gosh, that's such a great idea, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Except it, for that it it immediately makes you wonder where the Egyptians learned it from, and the only possible answer could be aliens. Yes, Hi. exactly. Logan, you said that wrong. You needed to say the only possible answer could be aliens. Like, you needed the dramatic pause in there, and you failed. We're kicking you off of the podcast. <laughs> Scully, you're not going to believe this. They kicked me off the podcast. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this is what Boaz specifically says about these, though. He says, A critical study of these two directions of inquiry shows that each is founded on the application of one fundamental hypothesis. The evolutionary point of view presupposes that the course of historical changes in the cultural life of mankind follows definite laws which are applicable everywhere and which bring, about that cult- and which bring it about that cultural development is, in its main lines, the same among all races and all peoples. This idea is clearly expressed by Tyler. Da, 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 da. Um, as soon as we admit that the hypothesis of a uniform evolution has to be proved before it can be accepted, the whole structure loses its foundation. <laughs> well done. He he just calls them out, and then um, and then he goes on to he goes on to talk about some of the things we've already uh, talked about. Basically, Boaz's point is that. Every culture exists in its own historical context. Um, it came uh, cultures come about um, cultures come about as individuals um, form societies and adapt to um, and adapt to their circumstances and are shaped by their history and by the uh, by the norms and practices that they establish within their societies that those things over time shape them. And that, uh, and that, therefore, we need to um, we need to first consider any culture in its context, so that we don't turn it into something that it's not. If we apply this to like something that you read or watch or consume as media, the the idea is basically, if you if you take this approach of considering what the what the thing that you're looking at is, and considering its context and where it came from you don't end up turning it into something that it's not that suits your purposes, which is colonialism. Like that that's colonialism colonialism's one of the methods of colonialism is you you take something that you find and you turn it in so, into something that works for you. The Romans find various pantheons of deities among the people that they colonized and conquered, and they're like, okay, you're all Roman now. All of your all of your gods can be Roman too. That well, I mean, it, oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, I I was just gonna finish off what I was saying there as that it this helps uh, applying this framework helps you kind of avoid that pitfall of turning things that have a context and a history into just their surface value and looking at them uh, as something that they're not. Yeah, I was just going to to add support to your connection of it to post-colonialism by again calling back to that Said quote I read earlier, which is to say that 
uh, European culture validated its own preferences while also advocating those preferences in conjunction with distant imperial rule. So yeah. it was a way of examining in culture, finding out European preferences and making it work in the framework of those preferences, uh, which is a very harmful attitude because it turns out that those cultures had nothing to do with European preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting, they, right? Um, I was recently reflecting on the teachings of Confucius. Um, you know, this is what I get from my philosophy degree. Um, but Confucius taught, among other things, that there were basically two kinds of morality in the world. There was like actual legit morality, like laws of the universe that you should follow. And then there was the second kind called the Li, or the rules or the tradition. And he said about the Li that so long as it doesn't contradict with actual moral law, you should be doing everything you can not to break the Li of the, of the society you find yourself in. So for instance, wearing black at a funeral is part of the Li of American culture. And the reason he said this is because if you are intentionally breaking the culture that's around you when you don't need to be breaking it. You are just causing people's lives to be in more chaos and to be in more panic and not just going with the flow of the universe, basically. And you're causing turbulence that doesn't need to exist. (laughs) Um, And so he would, he would beat people up who weren't following the Lee. Um, That's what he would do. Um, He would like beat him over the head with his cane. Confucius was a great guy. By the way, I mean, I I think that probably causes fewer ripples in the grand scheme of things, but I wouldn't say that causes no ripples in the Lee. <laughs> right, but if following the Lee <laughs> is a moral rule, then you should be, right? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, Confucius, great guy. But the point is, this is something that, that, is a, that imperialism is doesn't like that seem lot. to grasp at all. Because it goes in there and it says, well, our traditions and our culture are just correct period and you a different culture who is in the majority should adopt our culture i see here a good opportunity to transition to um nathaniel's thing here by asking the question but where does the lee come from um but before we do (laughs) that uh does anybody have any final thoughts about this um, just, I wanted to point out the, the strengths and weaknesses of historical particularism. Um, one of it, uh, they're, they're basically the same thing, in my opinion. Its strength is that it makes you look at whatever you're looking at in the messy, complicated um, way that it actually exists. Um, which is a good thing if you're trying to actually understand something. Um it's also a bad thing because it makes you look at things in a messy, uncomfortable, um, complicated way without cutting off any of the parts for simplicity. So it it's it's kind of it's kind of tricky to do, but I think it's I actually it's not really tricky to do. It's tricky to kind of uh, it's it's tricky if you're trying to you know um, if you're trying to just. Uh, really understand something at a basic level yeah i i guess a good way to put it is it it can make it really interesting to do a deep dive into a subject uh but if you're just trying to go enjoy a blockbuster movie that puts certain cultures in a problematic light 
uh, might not be as fun because you are looking through it at that lens and you might not be able to enjoy the experience as much. Yeah, that that's a good way to put it, yeah. Oh yeah, we should have led with this, but all cultural theory kills control. <laughs> <laughs> and it has for years, and it will never cease to do so. I just wish I could enjoy things uncritically now, and I can't. <laughs> yeah, for Bloodborne. I can enjoy Bloodborne uncritically. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to have to look at it, aren't I? <laughs> oh, well, I'm making you play it with me later tonight, so uh, I good, good chance there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, man. Uh, no. Uh, so we wanted to move into mine, which is uh, significantly different from yours, I would say. Though, uh, reasonably Is it, similar. though? I know. Is it? I know. I, I would say that it, it finds its... Uh, its roots in something different because it's not explicitly looking at colonialism. Um, but it is looking at capitalism because this is Marxism, who is named for, of course, Karl Marx. Uh, dear listeners, if you're not familiar with Karl Marx, um, after listening to this, just go look up some memes about Karl Marx. Uh, there's some good ones. Yeah, that'll be a you... great introduction to Marxist theory. <laughs> they're, they're, well, this is going to be their introduction to Marxist theory if they haven't had it already, but... Hopefully afterwards oh, they can go laugh at the uh, the good uh, jokes um, about classes being canceled forever. Um, but yeah, oh, gosh. <laughs> hey, Marx thinks classes should be canceled forever, and I agree with him. So, uh, just one thing before before we jump too deeply into it, what's that book that you've uh, that you've oh. got there next to you? Because that's probably a good text if somebody yeah. wants to go and read some stuff. So this text. Um, I don't know that it's the best text on it, uh, but it's the Marx Engels Reader. Uh, it's basically a collection of Marx and his buddy Engels' uh, most important work. Now, it's not a complete version of his work. So, for instance, his most famous book, Capital, um, or perhaps his most important. I suppose the Communist Manifesto would probably be his most famous. Yeah. But yeah. Capital is probably his most important work. Um that's like 900 pages certainly as longest yeah yeah it's like 900 pages um that's not in this little like 700 page book that has a bunch of his other writings in it as having read it for a class it's a bit of a slog yeah but it does have excerpts from capital in here um so the shortest way to describe marxist thought is that marx looked at the capitalist system around him and he said, I think that this is kind of abusive to people. How does the capitalist system work? And what can we do to change it, to make it better? Um, and his idea was essentially that you overthrow the capitalist to system. abolish it, yeah. <laughs> Just get rid <laughs> of it. Not, his oh, idea God. was not to change it and make it better. His idea was yeah. to absolutely be rid of it. Right. Um, when I say make it better, I meant make the lives of the people being abused better. Um <laughs> Let me be very clear there. He did not think, we can make capitalism really good for people. No, he was like, oof, this Despite is Despite what bad. some modern leftists would have you believe. Yeah. Um, and so what he basically did is he said, all right, the the core value of capitalism is human labor. Or really labor in general, but human labor. And the more human labor that's put into the system, in theory, the more goods and services come out of the system. And the goods and services are what we find wealth in. But the capitalist looks at the system and says, how can I pay the employees that I have the least amount possible for the labor 
and keep as much for myself as possible. So if you've ever worked a job where you work the same amount of hours as your boss or even worse, fewer hours than your boss does, and somehow you know that your boss makes significantly more than you do. Do you mean more hours than yeah, your boss he meant does? More hours. I do. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I meant your boss works like 10 hours a week while you work 40. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, and Tom Nook. <laughs> yeah. If your boss is Tom Nook from Animal Crossing, uh, Tom Nook is a capitalist. Yep. Um, and basically, they make money off of their employees doing the labor. Um, a really fun way to think about this is if you get a job making $10 an hour to do something, but you're able to hire somebody else to do that work for you for $5 an hour, you give them $5 an hour to do the work you were going to do for 10 and you still get the $10 and you keep the other 5 for yourself without doing any work. That's basically capitalism, and Marx said, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is really bad. Because what happens is, it's not just that you do that to one person, it's that the capitalist then has a factory full of people. So he has a thousand workers that he's paying $5 for the $10 job. And then from each employee, he's taking $5 an hour that they have made profit. And keeping yeah, it for himself. If I, if I can chime in here please, a little bit. Marx's thesis deviates a little too from this this idea of labor exploitation. Marx wasn't necessarily condemning the evil of a particular length of labor in a week, right? A particular amount of time. In fact, in the beginning of Capital, which I may or may not have open, he says that the wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an immense collection of com commodities appearing in their elementary form. So essentially this idea that uh, the driving force of capitalism is to get the immense collection of commodities. Mm -hmm. Marx goes on to explain that it's this immense collection that actually starts to become a problem because in this pursuit of immense collection, the basic human rights of people tend to be violated, right? People go hungry and homeless while capitalists have collected immense amounts of, of commodity. Basically. Yeah. Um, and so the exploitation is a problem, but even deeper than that, Marx highlights the societal problems that emerge from the hoarding of wealth. Absolutely. So with this whole concept laid down with the hoarding of wealth, uh, a great resource that you can go watch to just kind of get the feel for what this is like is Netflix's uh, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Um, <laughs> now that was an unexpected twist, but it hit me. Uh, well, so in brief premise for this, there are two important races, three really, but four. There are two important races to understand for the context of this. There are the Skeksi, who there's only like a dozen of them. Yeah, there's not very many. And then there are the Gelfling, who there are hundreds of that we see in the show. And the Skeksi are the ruling class, and they are in charge of everything. Um, and the Gelfling basically make the wheels of society turn. Um... But the Skeksi take tribute from the Gelfling. Um, it's a lot like old ruling classes back in the day. The difference really from Marx between the ruling class and the capitalist class is that with the ruling class, you knew the ruling class was taking from you. Uh, with the capitalist class, it's not as clear that they're doing that. Because the ruling class would come and tax you and take your money straight from your pocket. Whereas the capitalist just never gives you the money to begin with. So I... I, I kind of have a question going off of that. That's so that's a good reference to go and kind of like see 
uh, see the dynamic playing out, but um, how how do you tend to apply these ideas to the like to the things that we look at on this show? Yeah, um, I think in order to fully answer that, I should explain the other half of it, which is the socialist half or the communist half of the system that Marx says we can do better by making things equal and fair. And he basically says that by, I believe the phrase is, uh, from each according as they're able, to each according as they need. Meaning that everybody puts into the system whatever they can. Everybody works, everybody labors, everybody adds commodities in to the best of their ability. But then everybody's needs are met as much as possible. So people don't go hungry while somebody else is living lavishly. That's just not a thing that happens in the system that he proposes. Um, and he says it's better because people don't get abused. Um, and I think that what I often do with this is most of the stories that we look at, there is some sort of inequality going on. Just wherever you go. Sometimes it's super blatant, like in... Uh, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and sometimes it's much more subtle. Um, like Metamorphosis, maybe? Like Kafka's Metamorphosis? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Extremely yes. Like yes. between his boss and... Yeah. Or whoever his boss sends over and, yeah. and himself. Gregor's. No, that's a, that's a solid example. And you're able to see that inequality. Um, and I'm... I'm not sure so much that I'm that I'm looking at it and going, well, like, oh, well, like, this story could have been perfect in a utopia if it just would have been communist instead of a capitalist. But by being able to view it through that lens of Marxism and being able to see the power structure of capitalism, we're able to see how weirdly out of line Gregor's priorities in Metamorphosis were, where he's like, no, I've been transformed into a bug, but I gotta get to work. This yeah. must happen. Um, even though once he's turned into a bug and it comes to light at his work, they just forget about him. They don't care about him. Mm -hmm. But he, for some reason, cared so much about his work. Um, but they just, you know, turned a blind eye to him, basically. And these sorts of things happen all the time in stories. And you're just able to see, I think, a little more clearly the class structures that exist and the problems that arise. Um, and sometimes you can get really fun stories that do exist because of class structure. I mean, the story of Aladdin doesn't exist without classes. Yeah. Right? So they can be really fun and be the only way a story can be entertaining. Um, but then there are other stories that don't have class structure. A good example of this is star trek full stop just any star trek movie uh the federation is a i, I hear whimpering on the other end like can i quibble can i quibble can can i defend what i'm gonna say first and then you can quibble yeah but i think you're analyzed anyway go ahead in in, in the federation People just have jobs that they do that they're good at and they're passionate about. And there are promotions and there are ranks within the system. But nobody's getting paid. There's this great bit in the uh, fourth Star Trek movie where Captain Kirk goes back in time. Uh, sorry, I sound like a really huge Star Trek fan and maybe I am. What of it? 
Uh, you own books. You've crossed the threshold. There's no returning. <laughs> hey, just because I own the official autobiography of Captain James T. Kirk and of uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard does not make me a Star Trek nerd, okay? Um, then there are no nerds. There never have been. I'm waiting to bu- I'm going to buy the uh the official autobiography of uh Spock. The nerd here. class is as much of a myth as the uh as the middle class. Is that what you're saying here? Yes. Yeah, that's what he's driving at. <laughs> no, um but but Kirk goes back in time uh to the 80s when the movie came out and he starts to uh fall for this woman and they go on a date for pizza and uh he gets up to leave and the waiter's like, "Okay, but like who's paying for the bill?" And Kirk just gets this weird look on his face, and the girl, who he's told he, he's from the future, she's like, oh, what, they don't have money in the future? And he's like, no, we don't. Like, we don't have money. <laughs> um, which is a wild concept to many of us. But Star Trek was trying to push for many ideals, one of which was an economic ideal um, underneath the view of Marxism. Yes, that doesn't mean that people's labor don't don't get exploited in that film. Ooh. <laughs> in any of those films. Uh, we will not discuss red jumpsuit people right now, but <laughs> let's just say things are not necessarily evenly distributed. And there definitely is a mass wealth of state, even though there is not mass wealth of the individual. That um, I will uh, grant you. Yeah. Another way that um, we can apply Marxism to directly the text is kind of in the way that we talked about with post-colonialism. There was a Marxist in the 70s named Louis Althusser. Althusser? I always mispronounce his name, so if I botched it. Um, anyway, in 1970, in a, in a book called La Pensée, he, he was a French uh, writer. Uh, he wrote about ideal, ideological state apparatuses. And essentially what this is, is he wrote that basically anything that exists that puts information out in the world, puts that information out for the benefit of the reproduction of the conditions of capitalism, essentially. So what we can do is we can look for ways that art uh, perpetuates capitalism, basically. Yeah. Um, we can examine ways in which a story about hardworking John Henry might actually just be a metaphor about how we should all be good laborers in capitalism and work hard to beat out whatever machine capitalism puts in front of us, right? A story well, about... The Oklahoma land rush might actually just be a story about how we should work hard to acquire as much wealth as possible and live out the American dream. And I think it's worth mentioning that there are other stories which um, I'm going to actually reference one of my favorite movies here, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, which brief synopsis is a story based on reality uh, portrayed by Will Smith where he is incredibly poor. And goes through a lot of adversity, but by the end of the film becomes a very wealthy stockbroker. Um, because of his hard work and perseverance is the message of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the messages of capitalism, that if you work hard enough, you can be wealthy. Which <laughs> is not actually how it works. Um you do have to make it so that you are obtaining resources from the labor of other people at some point in order to be super wealthy in capitalism. I mean, he is a, he is a stockbroker. Right, which is what yeah, stockbrokers do. And it's worth the capitalist in the film. That is maybe the most honest of the rags-to-riches capitalist metaphors, um, is that he does just become somebody who speculates and who um, <laughs> basically exploits labor. Yeah. <laughs> to, 
I mean, he, not he speculates other people's money. Right. And then is paid. But, anyway, sorry. Yeah. yeah I, that, dir- that's my He indirectly quibble. fosters the system. Right. Yeah. right. Um, well, and that's the other thing that Mark says that is really interesting. I wish I had a direct quotation for it. But he basically says that a person who realizes that they're in the capitalist system would be insane to fight against the capitalist system because they will lose. Yeah, the one thought that just came to mind, and I thought I'd mention this just in case any of our uh, viewers are who we haven't scared, any of our listeners who we haven't scared away already are still sticking around listening but might be leaving soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've definitely staked out who the audience of our podcast is with this episode. Uh, um, I'm going to guess not conservatives, at least not economic conservatives. Huh. Here's the... Here's here's something to keep in mind for maybe a historically particular perspective from what we know about who Marx is. Um, Marx was pretty much, was pretty awed by the power of capitalism. I mean, along with a lot of other, along with an, a lot of other economic, economic theorists who looked at capital, uh, capitalism in a little bit more of a critical light um, from other perspectives aside from Marxism. Along with, uh, like, uh, I want to say Marshall Solins, who uh, was an anthropologist who looked at how economic, how other types of economic systems uh, follow uh, follow other forms uh, than uh, than previous theorists had um, had been able to accept up to that point. Um, Marx, along with a, along with a lot of other people, was very awed by the power of capitalism, just um, the way that uh, the way that the machine worked. He definitely uh, he definitely saw all of the same things in capitalism that you know, like Adam Smith, the theorist who outlined what capitalism is from like a from like a positive perspective. Mm-hmm. He he definitely saw all those same things um, and saw the power of it and the um, and the way that it, um, and the way that it did, um, achieve, uh, achieve certain necessary goals. Um, but he did, uh, but he was also looking at it from the human perspective, like, but what does this mean for people? Right. I, I not only, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's worth mentioning that Marx isn't super original in the way that he views the machine itself. Like a lot of these thoughts have been pushed forward by other people. What makes Marx incredibly unique is him saying two things. One, the system is bad. And two, it will inevitably change into something better, specifically being communism. Yeah, which is a really Not helpful. necessarily communism, but I see yeah. where you Well, that's his argument. That, that's that his he... argument, but yeah. Uh, it's it's an it's a important point, I think, because... Um, the the tendency along with um, along with colonialism and ideas like cultural evolutionism is to think that uh, is to you know change the idea of capitalism to the idea of the free market like mm-hmm. this is the natural state of things rather than something that people made and that people continue to people continue to propagate and change over time right. There's there's marks from a historical particularist uh, yeah. standpoint. <laughs> it may also be worth mentioning here that uh, many proponents of capitalism 
are going to say things like, well, this is the best we've got, which it is. Capitalism is by far and away better than aristocracy and the slave trade. Which Marx, I don't think, actually ever argues. I don't think he does either. But what Marx would say is, you're right, and I think we can do better. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which is worth noting. Yeah, the other thing that is worth noting, too, is that writings by Marx are pretty firmly divided into two camps, right? Um, it, there are his more analytical pieces, things mm-hmm. like Capital, um, and there are his more political pieces, like the Communist Manifesto. Um, if you want a good grip on where Marx is coming from, you would be better served to read his analytical work than you would be yes. to read his political work, because... Uh, especially the Communist Manifesto, he says in the introduction to that volume that it's not actually a firm stance necessarily of where he's coming from, but he was trying to capture a zeitgeist of the times. He and Engels were putting together a feeling of a communist party that already existed, mm-hmm. a general sentiment that they were attempting to capture, not to create a party or or even necessarily to unite under a banner. He was attempting to capture a a a feeling into a text that could then be relied on by existing communists um which is pretty important because what happens is is we start to discuss communism especially in the context of the 1960s in the united states and it begins to uh turn a lot of people off (laughs) um which is why i would immediately point people to marx's analytical work and say no look at look at what's here uh, this is a, a poignant and scathing criticism of capitalism that helps us understand a little bit more about our own society and, and some of its consumptive problems. Um, so that's, I guess, maybe a disclaimer that could have been put up front on this. Yeah, but... a, a lot of a lot of Marx's stuff, it's good to look at it from the, from the perspective of Marx is really good at, um, Marx is really good at uh, recognizing the problems that he sees around him. But you don't necessarily have to accept his solutions yeah. in order to also recognize the problems. Yeah. Just because a doctor recognizes the leg is broken doesn't mean that the doctor has the best solution to set it. Well, and not only that, I, what I more what I was driving at is we need not necessarily take things, for example, in the Communist Manifesto as necessarily what Marx would have prescribed as the solution. Right? Sure. A really common misconception of Marx, he was an advocate for communism, but a really common common misconception is that that means all communism falls under the spread of Marxism. Right. right? Yeah, Maoist and Stalinist communism and stuff like that are very different from what, what Marx proposes. Yeah. Even the communism of Marx's day and even the communism of the Communist Manifesto differ from what Marx proposes in books like capital and in his full thing so so it's important to remember that that was his political party at the time but that when relying on marxism it's his ideas that we can really start to see uh, and those tend to lean more socialistic or even um kind of like a a what we would just call marxism plainly um but yeah it's definitely a a lot of writing by a guy who lived in a very particular moment that has yeah. been viewed through many different lenses since yes um so i kind of wanted to bring up for just kind of our rounding out thought rather than our quick takes um what uh we found valuable but i think we already talked about that so uh logan do you want to 
Uh, do you want to take us uh, out then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks for sticking around. If you uh, big thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you we know we had hot one, takes. If you stuck around for this one, you are truly you're ready for the rest of Peep This Noise. You've been initiated. <laughs> Welcome to the fold. You are now officially a sweet summer child. Man, we got to get that on a t-shirt or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, next time, uh, we are actually going to be discussing a video game. Uh, and this one's going to be maybe a little less accessible. So um, if you can't access the actual game, which is, is called Gone Home, you can get it on PC or PlayStation 4 or I believe on Xbox as well. Um, it's about $15. If you can't access that game, uh, go ahead and, and give it a Google or, or look it up on YouTube. Find a Let's Play. You can watch somebody play through it. It's only about an hour or two hours. Um, it is possible to skip the bulk of this game. So when you're looking for a video of somebody playing through it, try to look for a more extensive or a more long one huh. um, rather than one that's like 45 seconds because that's the fastest I've ever beaten this game in. So uh, we'll be talking a lot about that, um, and that should be really exciting. Um, but yeah, if you enjoyed this by some miracle, if you enjoyed our dredging through uh, various cultural theories, uh, please like our podcast or give it a, a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast if it allows it. Subscribe, tell your friends who might enjoy listening. Reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Peep This Noise. Or you can email us if anybody still uses email anymore outside of the corporate overlords. You can find us at mail at peepthisnoise.com. You can find some original journalistic content at peepthisnoise.com. I think you still need a www dot in front of that. Um, we've got an article going up later this week about The Lord of the Rings written by Nathaniel. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, that's going through the editing phase right now. A uh, special shout out to Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers. They're the ones who allowed us to use their song, Don't Know Why, from the album California Light. That's our show's theme. It bumpers the podcast quite nicely, if I do say so myself. Uh, when you hear the outro that is going to take us out of this podcast, you're going to fall in love with it. And after that, you're going to look it up. See, this is me trying to do like the hypnotic suggestion kind of thing. Um, but honestly, it's a great album. Everybody should listen to it. Thanks again for listening to Peep This Noise. And remember, everybody likes bad things. So open up your mind. Let the wind inside